I'm Lynn Wolf, and welcome to this edition of our 2017 Rural Lifestyle Dealer Podcast Series. Today's program features Bob Clements of Bob Clements International sharing the seven guiding principles of successful dealers and is brought to you by Yanmar. I encourage you to subscribe to this series currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. Subscribing means you will receive an alert about upcoming episodes when they are released. Thank you to Yanmar for bringing us this podcast. Don't settle for less when you can have more. For example, Yanmar makes all its compact tractors major drivetrain components, the Yanmar engine, transmission, and axles in-house. Because they're made to work perfectly together, you and your customers get a hardworking machine with more usable power, less power loss, and a smoother, more comfortable ride. Yanmar's tractors are designed to work as hard as you do for a lifetime. Strengthen your dealership with Yanmar today. Email them at agmarketing at yanmar.com or call 770-877-9894. Again, that was agmarketing at yanmar.com or call 770-877-9894. Successful dealerships are unique. That is why they stand out from the competition. So what are the secrets that separate dealerships that have achieved phenomenal success from those that struggle to survive? It's not luck, connections, tons of money, or degrees from business schools. According to nationally recognized industry consultant, Bob Clements of Bob Clements International, it all boils down to being laser focused on seven common sense principles that are at the very core of a success in today's business environment. Bob is recognized as the premier management consultant for outdoor power equipment, agriculture, and power sports dealerships. In today's Rural Lifestyle Dealer podcast, brought to you by Yanmar, Bob shares what he's learned about success from working hand in hand with thousands of dealerships throughout his 30 year career. If you know anything about me, I've been doing this for uh, a lot of years now. Our expertise as a company is working uh, in dealerships, and our expertise, uh, if I had to put it someplace, there are several companies out there, but we tend to be really focused on service and parts. So service department is uh, near and dear to to my heart. So as, as we go through this, we do about 200 dealerships a year in uh, outdoor power, power, sports, ag, uh, construction, and their service and parts departments. Have a lot of experience in it. Uh, as I was at a dealership a couple of weeks ago, always learning. There's always new things that are coming up. Customers are shifting and changing. Manufacturers' issues are uh, shifting and changing. So uh, while we like to think a service department is a static thing that never changes, it's a, it's a living, breathing organism that you have to constantly be working with to uh, to develop to really maximize uh, what you can get out of it. So, as uh, Michael said, if you have questions, uh, please feel free to ask them. Uh, we've got I'll answer as many as we can, and if I don't get to answer your question. 
uh, please go ahead and submit it. And uh, as Michael said, uh, at the end of the webinar over the next couple of days, I will give you a response to all of them. That's really what our goal is here. We want you to walk away have an understanding of how important the service department is in your dealership and if you got questions uh, that's what I want to I want to do and if I don't know the answer to it I'll tell you I don't know the answer but try to direct you to some place that does that's that's my commitment to you so let's go ahead and get started I think the uh, the most important thing to keep in mind as we as we think about our uh, our service department in and of itself is uh, is understanding that the service really is the backbone of the dealership and uh, when I when I talk about that in that context I understand that you know sales is critical. We've got to have the whole good sales a part of it. Uh, but I find that too many dealerships today have built their whole future on whole goods. And the challenge with whole goods is is that whole goods tend to be weather or uh, economy directed. And there's not a lot of control you can have over it. If you're in a big ag dealership, you know the the power of the economy and the commodities market and how that whole industry is really uh, tightened up. Where if you're on the uh, on the the rural lifestyle side of it, that's continuing to grow and be healthy and strong and vibrant as well as the as well as is the outer power side of it so so when you think about the the dealership and I always tell the dealers that I work with it's really important to understand that that uh, that while while the uh, whole goods is the sexy part of the dealership it, the, the equipment's shiny and bright and pretty uh, the, the the backbone of the dealership is the service department and the heart and the blood that flows through the dealerships is the parts department but but the, the backbone is where the the service department is, and if the service department is not right, if the if the if the service department is putting out bad work or putting out work in an untimely fashion or uh, having comebacks and things like this, it hurts your whole dealership. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've been in the dealership and there's somebody looking at a new piece of equipment and somebody at the other end of the counter is screaming and shouting at a service manager for the poor work that was done, and it does take a little bit of the excitement away for a new customer. By equipment from uh, from a uh, a dealership that has bad customer service in the service departs department so so it's it's the backbone and if it's ran properly it it should be one of the most profitable pieces of your dealership we strive when we work with dealers to get their service department at, at producing at 55% gross profit margin with a net back to owners of 20% of every labor dollar produced so if you do your service department correctly and and you get your your people in your service department focused on putting out quality work uh, you can make a ton of money in it the challenge that I find that most dealers have is that they know there should be money in their service department but they've given up on it it's kind of like I have this safe full of hundred dollar bills I know there are hundred dollar bills there everybody tells me there are the, the safe is packed with hundred dollar bills I just don't know the combination I don't know how to open it up to get to that money and that's what my goal is as we go through this webinar today is I want to show you that really a service department is the simplest thing to run in your dealership if you understand the basics of it and you understand how to how to tweak it to make it work so that's what our goal is as we go through this this webinar today the the the, the thing that I try to get dealers to understand 
and I grew up on a dairy farm in northwest Missouri, so I spent 18 years of my life with my head next to a Holstein cow. And in that little dairy community, there's a little uh, a little cafe coffee shop combination still there today. And I'm guessing at 7 o'clock this morning, there were seven or eight retired farmers sitting around the table, uh, bitching and complaining about everything in life. We call them cavemen, where I come from, citizens against virtually everything. And, but at that table, uh, conversations happen. And, and as I tell all the dealers when I'm working with them in the – in the service department and conversations about dealer service departments happen at that table. I know when my dad was still alive and he would go down there, uh, if somebody had a piece of equipment service, the experience they had at the dealership, whichever one it happened to be, was talked about at that coffee table. And, and as I tell the dealers, that's the most important thing to understand. If we're going to be successful, we have to figure out very early on in our service department what we're going to choose to be known for. It's that word of mouth. You know, I hear our manufacturers talk about, you know, marketing and branding and I say you know I've been doing this for almost 30 years now and the most powerful marketing and branding has been and will always be word of mouth and our job in our service departments in my opinion is to be get the customers that leave there talking about us in a positive way and I, as I always tell my, my service managers and my owners you have to decide as an owner or a service manager what you're going to be known for what what are you going to have people those farmers at that little table those people that are together at church talking about your service department or that are going out to dinner with friends what do you want them to say about your service department and, and I tell all of my dealers that to me is the most important thing you have to think about. That's the most critical question you have to have because they are going to say something. They're going to talk to people in some way about what you do. And when I work with service departments and my team works with service departments, we basically let the service manager and the dealership and the service techs know we are going to be known for the place that punches out the highest quality work of anybody around. You will never ever in our shops have to apologize to anybody about the work that you put out because I'm a firm believer that people don't care what something costs as long as it's right. When it leaves your service department, it has to be right. So, so the quality is what you have to be focused on. Years ago, and I'm a pilot, but years ago I owned an aviation maintenance uh, facility. Ended up selling it over to the service manager that I had. But, uh, but I was laughing because when, when I took it over, it was right after 9/11. Uh, the, they had several techs there, and they, they were known for okay work. Now, if you know anything about airplanes, uh, I, t I always tell people in airplanes we don't get comebacks. Okay, we kind of expect it when it's in the air. We kind of expect it to stay in the air. And so, as I was working with the technicians that I had then at that point as I was paying them and I said look we're going to be known for quality we're going to be higher than anybody else we're going to charge more than anybody else and we're going to lose a few people because we're not going to be the cheapest anymore because the owner was trying to be the cheapest and that's just a good quick way to go out of a business I said but what we want to be known is quality so while we we may lose some people we won't lose all of them, and we will gain more because of the quality of the work we put out. And so every job we do, every job that we, we bid out, we're going to build time in for final quality inspection. So if it's a job, and if, and, we, and if we need an extra hour on that job to go back and make sure everything is perfect, then we're going to build it into the job right up front. We're not going to apologize for it. We're going to build it in. And I tell people, most of the people that have airplanes don't mind if you build a little extra time in every job just to make sure it's right. Now, I never really told the people that, that we were building extra time in, but we built it in, and when we priced it out, we made sure that that was there because I was committed to making sure that, that everything that left the hangar had quality attached to it. Nobody 
anybody would ever go back and say that I didn't do the job right or that our people were slugs and didn't know what they're doing. They always complained a little bit about my pricing, but I'm okay with that. I don't mind having people complain about my price. I just can't have them complain about the quality of work that comes out of my shop. And I'm going to challenge you the same way as you're on this webinar. What are you going to be known for? If you all have that little coffee shop in your area. You all have that little church group that gets together after church on a Sunday, and you talk about things like that. You have to make a decision, That's and it's the most important part of it, which is why I have it in this webinar. What are you going to be known for? Don't worry about your price being too high. We're going to talk about pricing a little bit later in this webinar. I challenge you to be known for the quality. I challenge your technicians to act like professionals and to not say, well, gosh, it wasn't on the work order, so I didn't do anything about it. That's not what we do. We are going to be known for the quality of work that comes out of our shop. When, 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 when those farmers are sitting around that little coffee table, they're going to say, well, they're a little high over at Bob's place, but if you want it done right, that's where you take it. And that's what I want you to be known for. So I want your people at that coffee table, that little, that little table, I want them to say they're a little high over at ABC dealership. They're higher than anybody else, but if you want it done right, that's where you take it. And I'm telling you, 80-plus uh, percent of the people will come to you because price doesn't have that much impact on most people when it comes to uh, repairs and service. You have to understand that 15% of your customer base only care about getting the lowest price. As I was at a dealership a while back, a guy was concerned. I was trying to get his trying to get him to get his labor rate up. And he goes, but Bobby said, you know, people are just, they're just going to quit doing business with me. I go, no, they won't. They go, well, there's guys out there that have their own little shops that have trees and stuff like this that they pull equipment apart on. They're less than we are now. And I go, I don't care. There's always going to be somebody out there that's half of your price. There's always going to be somebody out there with a tree and a block and tackle on, tackle on it that will split a tractor apart for 40 bucks an hour, right? Th those are not the people that we're interested in getting. They have eight or ten weeks worth of work out there because they're terrible at what they do and they have a lot of comebacks. Okay, That's not who we are as dealers. I don't care about that 15% of the customer base. I'm willing to let them go. Right, I've got to under. I've got to build my my business around the other part of it. So there's 15% of the people that are going to come into your service department that are going to beat you to death on price. I don't want those people because if I have to continue to lower my price and I have to do it at the expense of speed. Not efficiency, but speed. So the faster we work, if you're not efficient, if you're just working fast, you're going to put out crappy work. And so I, I can't have that happen because it goes against everything that I believe in the shop. So there's 15% of the people out there that don't care. It's like in the parts department. As I was talking to a dealer, a guy came up and he said, oh, everybody, our prices are too high, our prices too high, our prices too high. And, and I said, well, look, 15% of the people are price sensitive. So how many people yesterday came in and complained about your parts pricing? He said, well, I have three people come up and complain about the prices of our filter. I go, well, how many? many transactions did you do? And he went over to a system and he pulled up his report and he says, well, we did 40 transactions yesterday. And I said, well, if 15% of the people are price sensitive statistically, and that's true, I said, you should have had approximately six people complain about your price. So if you only had two, your prices are probably not high enough. And he disagreed with me on that, but statistics uh, would tell me that two people complaining about price is not even close to where I need to be worrying about my parts pricing. And I would tell you the same thing in service. You're going to have people walk in and go like, oh, you guys are outrageous. You guys are too high. I don't care, right? You go to a car dealer or a truck dealer, they're going to be higher than you are. So, so don't get caught up in this price thing because price has very, very little to do for most people about the service work you do. 25% of the people that do business with you do business with you because they love you to death. Man, they've got a relationship with you. You've developed it over time. You've helped them out. You've take, taken away pain from them, and they're not looking to go to any place else. So this is the group of people here that we want to embrace. Many times, 
sometimes these are the people here that we tend to uh, abuse a little bit to take care of the people that want a cheap price because they say, well, you know, Bob's been doing business with us for years. He'll understand, and so I'll take this guy that's beating me up on price and take care of him first. You, you, you take care of these people first. As 25% of your customers buy from you because of the relationship that you've developed with them over time, never, ever, ever take these people for granted. They don't mind what you charge. They don't bitch, complain, moan, whine. They just tickled to death that you took care of them. So that's a group of people that you got to keep your focus on. And then the next group is the group that we really want. It's the 60% that are out there that are not necessarily attached to any dealership right now. They're out there looking around. Uh, they they buy based upon perceived value they see from doing business with you. They, they may have used you in the past. They may have tried other places. And I tell all of my service managers, this is the group of people we have to go after. You know, when I hear, when I I hear people talk about you know working to make customers satisfied. I say you know I know theoretically it makes sense that we want satisfied customers, but I tell my shops and my parts departments I don't really care about satisfied customers. Satisfied customers call into this fall into this 60%. I'm interested in taking satisfied customers and making them loyal customers. Loyal customers stay. They tell other people. They talk to other people about what you do. So you have to understand that from a service manager standpoint or from a dealer standpoint, what what can we do in our business to take the 60% of the people that are satisfied with us, right? But keep in mind that if somebody else comes along that maybe has a little better price and puts out quality work, or somebody else comes along and has a brand new shiny building, and maybe the price is the same as yours, these people are satisfied, but that doesn't mean that they're loyal. And I tell all of my dealers, I said, understand that satisfied people will leave you to go someplace else if they think they can be more satisfied someplace else. And, and it didn't leave you because they were dissatisfied. They found something that gave them more satisfaction than what you do. So you didn't do anything wrong. It's just that somebody else came along and did something that separated themselves a little bit from that person. So this is the group of people that we want to go after. And I tell all my people, if 25% of your people are currently loyal, what would happen? if we could double that amount out of this 60%, what would happen if we could take 50% of all the customers we have out there that are currently doing business with and, and build them into this loyal customer? And that's your challenge in your dealership. you got to go after them. And I don't care whether it's service parts or sales. You are spending way too much time going after new people and trying to make them satisfied, and you're not spending enough time, energy, or your money on taking satisfied people and turning them into loyal people. And whether it's in service parts or sales, that's something you have to be working on in your dealership. Then we need to understand that again that that it's not about the price. I tell people again 60% of the people are only price sensitive, or 15% are price sensitive, 60% will be price sensitive if they don't see that you're unique or different. One of the most important things that we have to do in our service department is we have to show people that we're uniquely different from everybody else out there. Uniqueness is what people pay for. I have a picture on the slide of a Ming Dynasty vase. This vase is worth millions of dollars. It's a vase from China. Why, it, why is it worth millions of dollars? Because it's unique, one-of-a-kind, very rare. People will pay more money for things that are unique, one-of-a-kind, and rare. Okay, If you're like every other vase, if you're like every other dealership, if you're like every other shop, if I go into your shop and it's messy and dirty and disorganized, and I walk in and you say, well, we'll get to you as soon as we can, or we'll try to get – and you don't give me times and dates and specifics, you're like every other shop out there. There's nothing about you that's unique. What I want you to do in your service department is to create uniqueness. What is it that you do that makes you unique from your competitors? And, and if you say, well, my people are friendly. 
BS. You say, my people are better trained. I'm going to call you out on that too. My people are friendly. They smile more. We wash the equipment. So does everybody else. If you think that everybody else is not doing what you're doing, then you are missing the boat. And so you have to be thinking about as a service manager or as an owner. You've got to be sitting here thinking about what is it that we do that makes us uniquely different from anybody else. Does people have people? Do your people have the ability to go on your website and schedule service in? Are you sending out texts and emails to keep them updated on parts that are coming in, or on on the on the on on when their equipment is going to be serviced and back in their hands? Those are the kinds of things you have to do today. Not difficult to do, but most people aren't willing to do them. So you have to ask yourself your question: What makes you unique from your competitors? That Ming Dynasty vase is worth millions of dollars. I can get a truckload of of Chinese vases from Walmart, Target, or Kmart for $10. The difference is, is there's very few Ming Dynasty vases. I can get semi-trailer loads of vases from China. So if you're just going to be another Chinese vase, then you're not going to be worth a lot. Your goal is to, is to create that uniqueness, to separate yourself from everybody else out there. And I'm going to challenge you. If you happen to be a service manager on this webinar, right, I'm going to challenge you today at lunch to make a list of things that you believe that truly make you unique. Right, and and then and then and then look at those and see if you're just kidding yourself or if it's if it's true, right? And if it's true, congratulations. If it's not true, or you're just kidding yourself, and if it has to do with friendly, smiley, uh, nice uniforms, that's not it. You're missing the whole thing here. You got to do something for me as a customer that that creates a uniqueness, and that's what's going to get you more money, and that's what is, that's what's going to drive people to your service department and help you make more money as you do it. Then, then, then you also have to understand that you have to, in many cases, get rid of people. Personnel changes, and this is one of the issues that we deal with a lot in shops. And if you're on this webinar as a service manager and owner, everybody tells me it's so hard to find good technicians, Bob. You just don't get it. I've been doing this 30 years. Good technicians are hard to find, but it doesn't mean you keep a bad one. Right? It doesn't mean you keep a slug. It doesn't mean that you keep somebody that's complaining and that's griping, that's a prima donna. Right? That doesn't help you out. That's not going to help your shop out at all. So, so if you have a technician that you need, you know you need to get rid of, right? now's the time to do it. You're at that time of year for most of you that you're going into postseason. Okay, for many of you, your season has peaked and it's starting to wind down. And so you don't want to take a technician that's a slug. You don't want to take a technician that's a drain on your whole system back there and carry them all the way through winter and then go back in the spring with them and think, gosh, I wish I'd have got rid of this guy in the wintertime. Now's the time. So so in almost all cases, making personnel changes will improve your department. If you've got a bad employee, get rid of them. If you've got an employee that's not a team player, get rid of them. Now you've got to do it properly. There's ways to do that, but you, but you don't hold on to them just because you go, gosh, Bob, it's just so hard to find a good technician. I get it. I know it is, but they're out there, and most of the time they're out there, and you can't get them because you're not able to afford them, and you can't afford them because you're not making enough money in your shop to be able to afford it. There's not a one of you that's on this webinar that couldn't afford to pay a technician $20 to $22 an hour if, you, if they were producing at 100% for you. It's just not. And I tell people again, I could find good technicians, right, at that range. I can find good technicians, and I might have to do bonuses and things like that on top of it. I can find good technicians at 25, 28 bucks an hour. And if you're at 75 or 80 dollars an hour for your posted labor rate, you can pay that kind of money. If your shop is running right and you've got everything right, you can pay more than you dreamed you can pay. 30% of your effective labor rate can be can be allocated to service tech bonuses and hourly rates. 
30%. That's our target number there. So don't be afraid to change people out because you can't find good people because I would challenge you. There are good people out there. There are wonderful technicians out there in shops that are terrible shops and they're looking for a place to go. They're looking for somebody to be a part of, a team to be a part of that they can make improvements in and do what they do best. Technicians are fabulous people but there are a few that are prima donnas and you got to move them on out of your system. Do not ever be afraid to get rid of and make a personnel change in your service and I would say the same thing on your parts department. Part of what you have to do if you're going to be successful in this business is you got to set expectations and I tell this to all the people that I work with. Know what you expect from your people and your department. I tell people in the service department I expect professional work. So so when, when work comes in our shop and leaves our shop I expect us to be the ultimate professional on it. I expect it to be on time and budget. So if I, if I tell you I'm going to have a piece of equipment back to you by this, this time, come hell or high water, I'm going to do everything in my ability to make that happen. And and I'm going to bring it in on budget. If I told you this is what it's going to be, that's what it's going to be. That's what a professional service department has the ability to do. If you can't do that, then you need to work and get to a point where you can. Then I want every customer that walks out of my service department, I want them happy, excited, and wild. I want them to walk away going, I have never experienced that kind of that kind of experience in my life in a dealership. I want to wow people and that's what you need to get your people to understand. Professional work on time and budget and happy customers. There's, there's no reason that we can't deliver that in our service departments. So you set your expectations as an owner. You set your expectations as a service manager or service writer and say look this is what we're going to deliver here and then your job as an owner or service manager is to get rid of the barriers and the hurdles that are keeping those three things from happening and getting your people moving in the right direction you do it and you're going to have a huge change take place in your service department. Make sure that everyone is pulling their oar. You know I was a history sociology major in college and I studied ancient Roman and Greek history and one of the things that I loved was the old warships and the old warships when they go into battle they had this this big ship out here and it had a small square sail on it but for the most part it was all powered by people on oars and they were slaves and there was three different levels on most of the warships and everybody's job was to pull an oar and so if you were at the top level you were actually a better off slave than you were at the bottom, but I tell people again, business and a service department's the same way. Everybody's got to grab an oar and pull. I can't have just one person, right, pulling the oar. I can't have two or three people pulling an oar and then having somebody that's in the shop that's not doing what I need them to do. They're not keeping their area cleaned up. Uh, they're not being a team player. I can't have them in my ship because if I have one person in a small dealership, in a small shop that's not pulling their weight, pulling their oar, I start losing momentum. I start going around in a circle. So again, make sure that everyone is pulling their oar. That's a joke in our company. I'm here to pull oars. I've got some time to pull an oar. Can I pull the oar for you? And I want you to be thinking about the same thing. If you've got a warship out there, you've got two or three people probably in your dealership that are on skis or on a, in a rubber tube behind it, bitching and complaining because the people in front aren't aren't rowing fast enough. Cut them loose, be done with them. So make sure that everybody's pulling an oar. Let's understand our fees real quickly as we go through this. Now I know this varies based upon dealer to dealer and I know I have a lot of people that are rural lifestyle dealers that also handle outdoor power equipment. So I wanted to put this in here. For, so for some of you that are that are on the webinar that are more in the big ag or construction, this is not going to apply to you as much as it will for those of you that are on the webinar that are dealing more in outdoor power and compact tractors and things like this. So in every one of the 
dealerships we work with, if you're handling especially outdoor power, we have what we call a diagnostic fee. And a diagnostic fee is what we're going to charge you to look at equipment that we don't really want in to end up in our shop repairing. I have a picture of an old string trimmer up there. For those of you that are in the outdoor power side, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about here. What I want to do is not have somebody bring in a $79 Ryobi string trimmer and want me to look at it and give them an estimate. Because number one, it's going to take me uh, half an hour of labor and uh, a minimum of probably $30 worth of parts to fix anything on something like that. The string trimmer is only worth $79 new. You are not going to repair it when I come back with an estimate. So we charge what we call a diagnostic fee. And the diagnostic fee is a charge of one half hour of time to look at that equipment and give you an estimate on it. So if my labor rate is $70 an hour, I would charge a $35 hour, a $35 diagnostic fee for you to, for me to give you an estimate on that piece of equipment. That would be charged up front. What I'm trying to do is to keep that piece of equipment out of my shop because if I go back into your shops right now, if you handle and you do any work on equipment like this, there's going to be 50 Ryobi Craftsman string trimmers hanging on a rack back there that you guys have time in that nobody chose to come back and pick back up. And I do the same thing on riding equipment. So if people are bringing in old Craftsman mowers or things like this that they got at a garage sale and they want you to do an estimate for them. We do not do that estimate for free on that type of equipment. We charge a diagnostic fee on ride-on equipment for consumer-based ride-on equipment it's an hour so if my if my labor rate $70 an hour I charge $70 to do the diagnostic and if it's handheld equipment or walk behind equipment like walk mowers or things like this I charge a half an hour so if you're not doing that I would encourage you to do it you will get a little bit of pushback from people that are not customers of yours that are upset that you're gonna charge them in advance to look at it but you have to understand I've got to charge somebody for that time I'm charging it because I don't really want that piece of equipment in my shop. Now, if they choose to have you fix it, then we do apply that amount of time, that amount of money toward the repair. So it's not that they lose it, uh, but again, I want to try to keep that equipment out of my shop. It sucks up tons of time and tons of space. The next type of fee you need to understand in a high-performance shop is your shop supply fee. And your shop supply fees are used to offset your consumable cost and for upgrading your equipment. Most of the dealerships we work with charge 5% of the labor as a part of a shop supply fee. So we would use this for carb cleaner, brake cleaner, little squirts of this, little squirts of grease. Covers our shop towels. If you happen to use floor, floor dry or pig mats, it helps cover the cost of those things. And it also helps me uh, set aside money to buy new equipment with. So if I need a 10-ton floor jack to split tractors apart with, the question is, is well, how do we, how, where do we come up with the money to do that? Well, that's in an account in your accounting software called shop supply fee. And that's money that the service manager should have access to to buy tools and to pay for things that they need to pay for so my service managers don't have to come and beg the owner for a 10 ton floor jack if they need it they can go to the shop supply fee account see how much money's in there in there and purchase it from that. If it's specialty equipment, then we buy it out of that, but we then also continue to add charges to it. So if I had a, a laptop I needed to, to, to uh, purchase to do uh, shoot codes or to do uh, diagnostics on EFI engines, uh, if I got $3,000 in that system, then I'm going to add a time in every job to cover the cost of that. If I need a bore scope that's maybe a $300 bore scope, uh, I would add a tenth of an hour or two tenths of an hour on every job I use that scope on to help offset the cost of that, but that money would 
flow back into that shop supply fee account. So I know a lot of dealers take that count and then they and they zero it out at the end of the year and they count that money as revenue. That's really not how it should be done. That account should be carried through year after year and a service manager should have the ability to use that money that they've garnered out of that uh, to help pay for their, their the things that they're using in their shop as a part of that. We normally find 5% is ample and most of my dealerships that we consult with, they cut that off at certain amounts. So, you know, so if you're in outdoor power or, or uh, compact tractors, that might be up to $50. As you get into bigger tractor, big ag tractor construction and things like this, it might, might cut off at $100. So you have to play around with that a little bit, but that's what that shop supply fee money is for. Then the other one is your environmental fees, and if you're not charging this, you should be charging it, and it's used to take care of uh, oil, waste handling costs, and maintenance of your wash area. Uh, as I was at a dealer the other day, uh, he has a wash area, and it's it will it would not meet EPA governmental standards. Now, he doesn't have to worry about that right now because there's no pressure in the county uh, or in the state to do it in the state that he's in, but as I told him, I said, that's going to change, uh, and at some point, you're going to be required to spend $40,000, $50,000 on a wash bag. Uh, that lets us separate the oils and things out, and then we're going to have to maintain that. So if you don't currently charge an environmental fee, you should be charging it, even though maybe you're burning your own waste oil or you're having somebody pick your oil and stuff up for free. Uh, there's still money I need to be setting aside that ultimately I'm going to need either to maintain my existing wash area or to uh, help me put in a wash area to do that with your environmental fee. And most of my guys are charging two or three dollars per work order for that. Again, doesn't seem like much until you multiply it by 2,000 work orders. And uh, then all of a sudden you've got four to maybe $6,000 that you're building up in that. So make sure that you're doing those fees on there. As a side note, do not call that an EPA fee. I know I had a dealer that was calling it an EPA fee. You cannot call that an EPA fee. The EPA is a governmental agency and they do not charge fees to dealers. So you call it an environmental fee. So just make sure if you're calling it currently an EPA fee, stop that, change it over and just call it an environmental fee uh, from that perspective, all right? We'll rejoin Bob's discussion, but I did want to take a moment and again thank our sponsor, Yanmar, for making this program possible. Using ever-advancing technology, Yanmar continuously strives to exceed customer expectations and deliver exceptional lifetime value by integrating its products, services, and knowledge into superior quality, comprehensive solutions. Visit them at yanmartractor.com backslash new dealer inquiry. That's yamartractor.com backslash new dealer inquiry. So far in this podcast, Bob Clements outlines the first of the seven principles of high performance dealerships. Number one, stop the bleeding of cash. Number two, generate instant income. Number three, build your dealership culture and number four, define and refine your processes. Let's get back to the program and hear more from Bob on the other guiding principles for success, including creating a plan, incorporating the right people, and measuring, monitoring, and adjusting your dealership's performance. labor rate for non-purchasing customers. We talked a little about labor rate earlier on it, but people say, well, how do I determine how much I'm going to charge for my labor? 
your labor rate is set for non-purchasing customers. We have two types of customers that come into our service department, purchasing and non-purchasing. A purchasing customer is somebody that bought the equipment from us, therefore we've made some money on it and in profit, and, and so we have a labor rate for them. The posted labor rate is for non-purchasing customers, so you bought a piece of equipment from somebody else because you wanted to save $300 18 states away. You bring it in, and now you want me to work on it. I'm going to work on it, but I'm not going to work on it at the same rate as I work on the equipment that the guy that brought it from me. So if your current labor rate is $85 per hour, I would ask you to set your new labor rate to $95 an hour, and that is the labor rate you're going to charge for non purchasing customers. That would include manufacturers who you're doing warranty work for, as well as people that didn't buy the equipment from you. People that bought the equipment from you would get then a $10 per hour discount on that labor rate because they bought the equipment from you. So it gives them a, 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 a perk of being a customer that's buying from you because part of the profitability uh, out of that sale goes to help, help you in the shop also with marketing and things like that. So you have your labor rate and in most cases, uh, your labor rate needs to be set a little higher than what it is. When I go into an area and determine labor rate, by the way, I don't call around all the competitive dealers and say, guys, what are you charging in your shop? We call that in my company pooling ignorance. If you're calling 10 other dealers and all the dealers are at $70 an hour, and you say, well, I'm with all the other dealers, they're calling everybody else too and finding out that everybody's at $70 an hour. That's a stupid way to set your labor rate. Your labor rate should be set based upon what the local car or truck dealers in your area are charging in their shop. There's a lot of time and energy spent by Ford, Chevy, Toyota, Honda, uh, Mack trucks, lots of money spent to determine what a labor rate should be for that area they're in. So we don't have to go back and rethink this. Just go look at what their labor rate is and you need to be 10 to 15 percent below that if you're working on compact tractors and outdoor power equipment. If you're working on big ag and construction, you need to be at that rate because it's the same kind of thing. So I tell people again, so your labor rate is not based upon you calling around to other dealers and then deciding to be where you're at. Just go find out what the real numbers are for your area and set your labor rate based upon what the local car or truck dealer is doing. Be a little bit lower than that and you're going to be in great shape. That's where most people get their sense of, of a fair labor rate anyway because their cars are being serviced and trucks are being serviced much more often than their tractors, their outdoor power equipment, or their compact tractors. So keep that in mind as you're looking at setting your labor rate. Understand what you sell. Your shop is all about selling time. That's what we sell. We don't sell labor hours. I know there's other consultants that say you do, but I've been doing this 30 years. Time is your product, not labor dollars sold. I don't care what your labor dollars sold are. I don't care what you charge yourself internally for an internal labor rate. I don't care in the shop. We sell time. If I have three technicians and they're, they're eight hours a day, I have 24 hours of time that I as a service manager need to sell. 24 hours. Each hour is broken into 10 segments. Each segment is six minutes. So we sell time in our shops by the tenth of an hour. All right. So if I have three technicians, they're there eight hours a day apiece, three times H24. Each hour has ten segments of six minutes each in them. I have 240 segments of time to sell. If my labor rate is $80 an hour, each time segment is worth $8. So I have eight times two hundred and forty dollars that I or two hundred and forty segments. I have eight dollars times two hundred and forty time segments. I am responsible for selling every day as a service manager. That's your job as a service manager. 
the owner is buying time for you to sell your job is to make sure that it gets sold every day because unlike parts or unlike whole goods at the end of the day we don't get to carry the time we didn't sell over to somebody else we have to throw it out like a bad gallon of milk so again you sell time not labor dollars I don't care what you sell the time for I have other people that talk about selling their their internal labor rates at the same rate they sell their external labor rates or warranty labor rate. I don't care as an owner what you choose to charge yourself for time. It's just a gimmick anyway. You're putting money in one pocket and taking it out of the other. It doesn't matter to me. What I want to know is is there was 240 time segments to be sold. At the end of every day, we do a, a measurement, a labor analysis report for a service manager. I want to know how many of those hours, how many of those segments got sold. So understand that time is your product. Product, not labor dollars sold and we sell time by the six minute increments so there's there's ten uh, time segments in every hour and I expect as a service manager you're accountable for every one of them and I expect every one of them to be sold to somebody if you're not selling them all you either need to get more work in your shop or you need to reduce the number of technicians you have that's the reality of it that's how business works repeatability creates profitability part of what we're trying to do all the time in our shops is to take what we do and repeat it over and over and over again and again that's the challenge that a lot of shops have because you don't have good processes so if you don't have a good process nothing about what you do is repeatable and nobody no, nobody can sit here and do it over and over and over again you go to McDonald's you go to a manufacturing facility everything we, we get what we get today because manufacturers and and the fast food restaurants they've made everything repeatable the, the more repeatable it is the less skilled person I even have to do it so repeatability creates profitability and repeatability comes from you creating and building good processes in your service department we're going to talk about that in just a little bit you also then have to create baselines. When when I go into dealerships or one of my other guys go into dealerships, we ask some basic questions. The first rate is is what's what's your average tech efficiency? So so if a tech's on a work order, right, and then they finish that work order and they bill out that work order on on the average, what would Bill's if Bill's a technician, what would his efficiency be? We call it tech efficiency. Some people call it wrench efficiency or bench efficiency, but it's literally you're on a job for two hours and you bill out two hours, then you would be a hundred percent efficient. That's tech efficiency. Most technicians are running fifty to sixty percent efficient. I'm just telling you that. Most technicians, if they get four to five billable hours a day out of their wrench time, right, that's that's their efficiency. And that's what's killing your shop. Recovery rate is a measurement of how many hours the tech is there versus how many hours they're billing out. And I would say again, most shops that we work with, if you're recovering at seventy percent or seventy-five percent, you're in the average. Uh, you're not making any money in your shop until you're recovering at eighty-five. So if you're not getting a minimum of six billable hours a day out of every technician, say eight hours, your shop is losing money. It is being subsidized by parts and your whole goods department. So you've got to get your recovery rate up. And then flat rating is what percent of the work are you flat rating? In most shops that we work with, and we work across the board in all kinds of shops, there's no reason that 75 to 80 percent of all the work in your shop cannot be flat rated. It's easy to do. You just have to understand some basics on it. And I don't have time to go into a lot of flat rating here and 
Michael, this may be another webinar that we do at some point in the future because there's a, there's just a misunderstanding about what flat rating is and how to do it. And every one of you, regardless if you have a flat rate guide that's somebody that somebody's created, it's not difficult to flat rate work. So where are you now relative to those numbers? Tech efficiency is what percent of each hour they rent are they able to bill? And again, I talked about this already. Your business management software will look this up. I expect a technician to be billing out a minimum if they're a B-level tech, 100%. So if you're on a job and the manager has priced that job out correctly, the job should be priced out so that the B-level technician could complete that job in the time that's allocated for it. If you have technicians that are B-level technicians that are not at 100%, you are not pricing your work out correctly or you don't have a B-tech, you got a C-tech working on a B-job. So you don't have the right job in the hands of the right technician. A-level technicians on a work order should be running 115 to 120% efficient. So if you've got an A-level technician and he's only hitting 100, you are not pricing your work out correctly as a service manager. You're not flat rating it. You're running it too close to to uh, to the the time that it needs. So you have to understand that. I expect tech efficiency for a B-level tech to be at 100%. I expect an A-level tech to be at 115 to 120%. So when we look at tech efficiency, if you've got an A-level tech that's only running 85%, the question I would ask my manager, is it my tech's fault or did I as a manager not price that job out correctly? Or is there something else that's going wrong but something is happening there? So you need to be aware of that. Recovery rate is what percent of each hour are you paying techs that they're able to bill? And again, recovery rate is a simple measure of billable time divided by clock time. So if they're there eight hours and they bill out eight hours, you've recovered 100% of that time. That's what I'm looking at. There's another one Another rate I'm not going to get into because we don't use it that much, but recovery rate is part of what you're we are required as a manager to do. I expect you as a manager to be recovering at a minimum of 85%, at a minimum. There's honestly no reason that there's there's no manager out there that shouldn't be able to recover at 100%. Now, there's some goofy ways some of the other people out there look at time available to sale, sell. I look at real time available to sell. So if a technician's at, at a service training event for a week, you didn't have time for them to sell. Some other people would say that's time you need to calculate in. I think that's all BS. If, if they're not there and they can't physically turn a wrench uh, and they're in training, I, I want them in training because they'll be more efficient. So anyway, so my, my evaluation recovery rate is billable time, time they had available versus the clock time that they're there. That's your recovery rate. Service manager's responsibility again is to cover 100% of that paid hours, and that's what I'm going to measure you on. And our service managers get their bonuses based upon recovering at 85 and up. So in my shops, if you're a service manager, you get a bonus. If your recovery rate is 85 to 95%, you get a, a, a dollar amount bonus on every hour the shop produces. If you're 96 to 105% recovering, you get a much better bonus on every hour produced in the shop. And if you're 106% above on recovery rate, you get a really sweet bonus for every billable hour produced in the shop. Uh, in most of my shops, my service managers can easily make, if they've got enough technician to do it, but they can make 1000 to $1,500 a month pretty easy just in bonuses. But again, it pays me so much from, a, from an ownership standpoint. And the other thing is, is when you're recovering at about 106%, uh, you've got a four-inch hose that's pumping out four inches of water. So at that point, you're going to need to look at adding another technician. And by the way, just recovery rate is how I determine if you need another technician. When somebody says, gosh, Bob, we're really behind 
fine, we need another tech. And I look and you're only recovering at 70%. The last thing you need is another technician because it's going to drive your recovery rate down. You need to get the technicians you have more efficient. And so adding another technician to a problem, uh, to a shop that's recovering at less than 85% is a bad idea because you, you've got so much capacity that you're not currently using with the techs that you have. Unless you only have one tech, then maybe it's not such a bad idea. Flat rate more work, we already talked about that. If you don't have a flat rate system, use your manufacturer's warranty rate guide. And then, then most of you, and again, I know we got a lot of different types of dealerships re represented here, but in most of you, if you use your, your manufacturer's warranty rate guide and you added 50% to that, that would cover all of your work. That's what we call equipment in good condition. Equipment has three devil levels of condition to it. Excellent to fair, excellent to good, good to fair, fair to poor. We add 50% to warranty rate guides for equipment that is in good to fair condition. That means it has mild to moderate corrosion and that most of the shoulders are still on all the bolts. If I'm going to bring out acetylene as one of my tools, so now we're moving into equipment that's what we call level three, fair to poor condition, then I add another 40% onto that time. So that's how you use flat rates. So flat rates, warranty rate guides for the manufacturers are based upon equipment being in near new condition. So again, so you have to make some adjustments based upon your manufacturer's rate guides. I know most of you already are bumping that up, so it's not a problem. I'd say in most cases that you're you're assuming that there's only one flat rate. That's not true. That's your mistake that you're making in flat rating. You add more time based upon equipment condition. We have equipment that's either excellent to good, good to fair, or fair to poor. As you get into the fair to pour. This is equipment that's been heavily abused. And as I said again, I'm probably going to use a plasma torch or, a, or, or acetylene as one of my tools. I'm going to make you pay more time for that. So think about that with your flat rating. Use average efficiency for time and material work. When you're working with technicians, again, one of the things that I stress is making sure that if you do a time and material job, and for those of you that don't know what it is, if I can't flat rate a job, then I'm going to tell the customer that we're going to have to charge them for time and material because I don't know what it is. And this could be uh, electrical issue. It could be, uh, could be something to do with hydraulics. It could be something that there's no flat rate for. I really won't know what it's going to be until I get into it and see what's going on with it. So when you're using... Uh, when you have to do time and material work, I would use a technician's average efficiency as a part of the billing equation. So as an example, if I have a technician that's 110% efficient and we put him on a time and material job, and it takes, and let's say that the time and material job ends up taking him six hours to do. Okay, I would add another 10% to that, so I'd make it six hours and and 30 minutes, or I'd probably make it seven hours if it were me. I would build that time up because if I'd had that technician on a flat rate job, he would have produced me at 110 or 120 percent. So I use a technician's average efficiency uh, during a two-week period of time as a multiplier on time and material work. And I think when you get into that you're going to find it's going to make your shop more profitable and it's fair to you. Um, in most cases if it's a time and material job you guys know as well as I do you're taking your best technician you're putting on a time and material job and if they were doing flat rating they could make you a lot more money so I'm not cheating anybody in it I'm giving you my best technician on time and material work you're still going to come out way ahead as a customer at, 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 instead of me putting a B-level tech on on a job that's an electrical diagnostic that you're going to try to figure out what that is. So you're way ahead of me using my best tech on it. I'm just going to bill you a little bit more for that time because I use my best tech on it and it hurt my shop if I don't. So time and material 
use the average tech efficiency for a two-week period of time as a multiplier on time and material work. Start with a good process, and we talked about process before, and again, I got a whole workshop just on process, but again, you understand that from the moment equipment comes in to the moment equipment leaves, you need to have a documented process for everything that happens. We have about an eight-page process that we put in place in a dealership when we do dealerships, and I tell people it literally, from the moment a piece of equipment touches our lot to the moment that equipment is back in their hands, we have a process for everything that happens so that if at any point something breaks down I can go back to my process and say oh I see where we broke our process down here I see where it fell apart here so make sure again you've got good processes for everything literally from the moment a work order is created all the way to the point where the customer has the equipment back in their hand you need to have a documented step-by-step -step process in your shop we talked about a little bit earlier slide if it's not repeatable you can't be profitable doing it process gives you repeatability and that's what you're trying to do in your service department and then lastly here then we're going to come in for questions is to develop a compensation program that's performance oriented and that reinforces your process this is probably the question I get the most asked on Bob I've got a comp program in place and and it does all I'm doing now is paying out more money and the work in the shop still is terrible well the, the, you, you build your process first Okay, so let's just go back to 101. Don't put a compensation program in place that gives people more money for doing what they should be doing anyway. Okay, the first thing you have to do in your service department is you've got to create a process. Once I have the process created, then I can build a compensation program that reinforces the process. Okay, most dealerships put a compensation prog program in place but there's no process okay and, and so then the whole thing starts to collapse or somebody figures out a way to cheat it in our system we have a process the process is set up so that you as a b-level tech can be at a minimum of 85 percent on any work order that you touch so in our system once we have the process in place then we build a compensation program that's built around the process so if you and we pay all of our technicians an hourly rate so I'm not a big fan of piecework or flat rating like the auto or the trucking industry I find that it's harder for me to find technicians and besides that if I've got good technicians they've got families and people to feed and I want to make sure that I help them have a good life but if I've got a technician and I'm paying him an hourly rate so let's just say for fun I've got a technician I'm paying $15 an hour and my labor rate is $80 an hour it's my effective labor rate which is I take all of my my costing away and then from my posted and my effective labor rate it becomes becomes the difference between those two so let's say my effective labor rate is $80 an hour I could pay 30% of that $80 an hour out to a technician that was 100% efficient so if I've got a technician then that which would be $24 an hour so if I've got a technician and I'm paying $15 an hour now I could pay him up to $24 per hour using bonuses if he were 100% of efficient and so that's the way our compensation programs are set up so in that particular case if I had a technician that was 85 to 100 percent efficient so in, in every eight-hour day if he was billing out a minimum or she were billing out a minimum of six hours a day I would give them in my system and it depends upon where you're at but I would probably give them a two dollar per billable hour bonus plus their fifteen dollars an hour so in a in an eight-hour day if they build out six hours they would pick up an extra twelve dollars in bonus plus their fifteen dollars per hour okay if they were a hundred and one up to a hundred and twenty five percent efficient I would take that two dollars and I would go, I would go to a four dollar rate so now if they're there eight hours and they bill out a minimum of eight point 
five hours, so they have to bill out more than eight hours to be 101% efficient. But let's say just for fun, they bill out 10 hours in an eight-hour day because we're flat rating. Okay, now they would pick up a $40 bonus on those 10 hours instead of a $20 bonus because now they've moved into that other level. All right, so it's all built around my process. If they were 126% or higher, I would give them a $6 bonus per billable, billable hour instead of a 4 or a 2. So at 126% now, I'm getting 11 hours out of them or so. Let's just say 11 for fun. So now they would pick up a $66 bonus instead of a 44 or a 22. That's how you build your compensation program. Keep it simple. Have a based around performance. So ours is 85 to 100% this bonus, 101 to 125% this bonus, and 126% and up, they get a higher bonus up there. But we don't even build a compensation program until I've got a process in place. Because if you do, it's going to fail. Because what happens is the guys, you didn't change anything about your process, and now all of a sudden the guys are trying to get make more money, but your process is all broken. It's got barriers, hurdles, rivers they have to cross, and they can't do it and then pretty soon your compensation program that you were setting up to be a motivating factor with your with your employees turns into be a demotivator and so I tell people again your compensation program is the last part of what you're doing in your shop not the first part and we have phenomenal success using the system we've used and we've tried in the years we've been doing this I've tried dozens and dozens of systems and I find the easiest way to do it it's simple you can run a report every night out of your business management software that shows the performance by technician for that day we do have a couple of caveats if you remember the very first slide and then we're gonna get ready and we're gonna do some questions here real quick but in the very first slide or the second slide I talked about quality 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 our technicians if you're in ag or construction, you get zero comebacks in a two-week period of time. Zero, zero, zero. If you have one comeback, something that you did wrong that you should have caught, that you should have done, okay, you lose 100% of your bonus. So for a lot of my guys, I've got a dealership over in Clarksville, Tennessee. It's a Kubota dealership. Those guys would lose a thousand bucks in a two week. I mean, I got two techs over there that that average a thousand dollars every two weeks in bonuses. So they, if if they had one comeback, they would lose a thousand dollars. Trust me, they only lose that once. And then you don't have a problem with quality. These guys, their their bonuses are based upon them having quality. If you're an outdoor power or compact tractors, then I give you two comebacks in a two week period of time. I give you actually one if you're in compact tractors. If you're an outdoor power doing string trimmers and walk behind mowers and stuff because your, your volume that you're turning through is so much greater, I do allow for a couple of those uh, in a two-week period of time. But I'm a nut on that. So I go back again. Is I, want ex I expect you – I'm willing to pay you really good money, but you got to put out good work. And by the way, not everything that everybody says is a comeback is a comeback, and, and it truly has to be something that the technician did wrong or didn't do correctly that made it come back in. So if I had a front seal leaking on a tractor and it comes back and the front seal seal still leaking. If the front seal was bad in the beginning, then that's not a comeback. If the, if the technician didn't put it in correctly and it's leaking, that is a comeback. So I'll leave that up to the service manager to be fair with the technicians on. Thank you, Bob, for sharing the seven principles that all high-performance dealers follow. As you mentioned, not every successful dealer follows every single principle, but many follow most of them. And if you are doing all of them, are you doing them at the highest level you can? Bob's final point is a strong one in terms of the one thing that dealers could do today. Create a plan 
regarding where you want your dealership to be in five years. Keeping in mind that that plan and the supporting steps need to be constantly monitored, measured, and adjusted. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. And go to www.rulelifestyledealer.com to learn additional best practices from Bob Clements regarding achieving excellence in your parts, sales, and service departments. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Yanmar, for helping make this Rural Lifestyle Dealer podcast series possible. And please share your feedback on today's program by sending me an email at lwolf at lessetermedia.com. That's L-W-O-O-L-F at lessetermedia.com. Or call me anytime at 316-648-3717. You can also keep up on the latest rural equipment news and trends by registering online for our e-newsletter, And be sure to follow us on Twitter at RLD Editors and on our Rural Lifestyle Dealer Facebook page. Stay tuned for additional podcasts from Bob, our other experts, as well as from dealers. From all of us at Rural Lifestyle Dealer, I'm Lynn Wolf, and thanks for listening.